As we kind of watched the horrific events of 2020 unfold, you started to see the beginning of the the COVID-19 pandemic coinciding with, especially in America, the resurgence of Black Lives Matter. You started to hear all of these companies say, oh, we're here for you in solidarity, or we stand with the Black community, or you know, we're here for you. <laughs> How many times did we say we're here for you? And then you'd look under the hood and you'd be like, How? How are you here for me? How are you standing in solidarity? So I said, I think this is kind washing when companies spend more time and money marketing that they're caring, empathetic, and kind than actually doing anything about it. Welcome to Wave Social Podcast, powered by Arcade Studios. My name's Mike. I'm here with my co-host, Mitzi, and we've curated a show for digital marketers, advertisers, and modern entrepreneurs who want to stop chasing the tide and start making waves online. Each episode, we'll sit down with the tastemakers and strategic minds behind some of the most engaged communities and up-and-coming brands. We'll pull back the curtain on their strategies and experiences to uncover the methodology behind their seismic impact. Thanks for joining us. Let's dive in. All right. Welcome to another episode of the Wave Social Podcast. We are as excited as ever to be here with you. And Mincy, why don't you just talk about why we're not doing ads this season? <laughs> yeah, we're trying something new this season. Instead of getting support for the podcast through advertisements, we are going to be doing something that I think is a bit more fun and exciting, and that'll be through merch. So you can head over to the wavesocialpodcast.com, take a look at our merch collection and get some stuff. And in exchange, we'll just be able to continue to do this great podcast that we love so much. And then hopefully you'll have something sweet to wear and show off on your Instagram. Yeah, feel free to buy it if you want to. But even more than that, let us know what you think is deadly. What do you think needs to go? And <laughs> even in this episode, we talk about active listening. So we're going to be listening to hear what you like, what you don't like, what you want to hear more of, what you want to see more of. Yeah. So why don't you tell us about this episode? Okay. That sounds good. So I am pumped to introduce Dr. Eric Solomon, who has held leadership positions for the top technology brands in the world, like YouTube, Spotify, and even Instagram. Now he builds and installs what he calls human operating systems for organizations and their leaders, which is a compelling topic that we get into in detail in this episode. And I promise you have a lot to be excited about. Mm -hmm. We talked about his studies in psychology and even artificial intelligence and how it led to roles at some of the biggest tech companies like Mike mentioned and how he got to be involved in the early days of mobile tech, which is now kind of the standard of how we all communicate online. Yeah, we threw it back to T9 texting for all you <laughs> older gen millennials. You will definitely remember. I feel like that was kind of the measuring stick for how good you were with your cell phone, which mm. is how fast you could type with T9. But that wasn't all we talked about by any means. We also kind of went in a more serious direction, talked about some tragic experience in Eric's life and how that brought him to a point of decision to focus more on what mattered to him and the difference that he wanted to make instead of just going for the big roles or being part of that crazy marketing machine that we all know all too well. Mm -hmm. One thing that I loved that he talked about was the idea of empathy and how he's kind of over the word. And he also coined the word kind washing. And he kind of gets into what that means. 
but we're all familiar with it. It's basically this year has really brought out every kind of message from every brand about how they're with us and how they're standing with us and all these really nice fluffy sentiments that have come out and kind of how that's just the way of the first response that most brands take during times of conflict or crisis, which I'm sure all of us can kind of in our heads think about which brands that we've seen do that. But he kind of turns it on its head and challenges us as marketers. It challenged me to think about how to really walk the walk with the brands instead of throwing out some blanket statement to really go back to the beginning and challenge companies and brands to actually do what they're saying that they are going to do, which is, you know, awesome. Yeah. I think this is going to be really good, especially for the marketers listening who had to kind of act like crisis communicators Mm -hmm. this past year and show up in different ways for their clients. And I know for some, it could have been a little bit traumatic Uh, for others. It could have just been a great learning experience, but All the same, I think it just kind of validates our role as trusted advisors for the brands that we're working with and ultimately understanding that there's people on the other side of them who have opinions and personalities and also feelings. Mm -hmm. Yeah, it kind of brought me back to some moments earlier this year where the rise of conversations around racial equality were happening and the rise of the Black Lives Movement matters was happening. And we were kind of in this position of working with our clients on statements and those really polished black square white text graphics that we'd be posting. And in the thick of it, we were all kind of just doing our best. But the one benefit of those moments is that we got to have real conversations with clients and really challenge them that before they post this post about how they care about the black community, what are they actually doing to support the black community? And that was really important conversations to be had. And I know, at least in our experience, we were seeing our clients have those difficult conversations and kind of owning up to what they were and weren't doing, which was great. But I think this conversation kind of brought up those memories. And it also kind of made me feel like, This is an important role of marketers too, not just putting that external message out, but also challenging clients and challenging heads of companies to think about what they're doing and how they can be better. Yeah, absolutely. I think one thing that Eric touched on that relates to this too is just the fact that crisis always exposes inefficiencies or character or values issues within organizations. And I think it's just an opportunity just seeing the way this year happened and the way we had to interact or lead with our clients. Also just an opportunity for us to ask ourselves, where is our character at? Mm -hmm. What is the state of our business or our brand or ourselves internally so that we're prepared for things that will happen in the future? Mm -hmm. Because this isn't going to be the last pandemic and it's not going to be the last equality crisis. There's going to be more in the future. So uh, even just making sure individually we're prepared for those moments so that we can really make sure that we are ready and show up right. Mm -hmm. Yeah, this is going to help us as marketers show up best for 2021. So Mm -hmm. I'm really excited for everyone to hear it. Yeah, but we don't need to keep talking about it. We can just get into the interview. But before we do that, reviews matter to us. It really helps make sure that other people that want this type of content see this type of content and ultimately hear this type of content. So uh, we like to read a review from our listeners every episode. Mitzi's going to take this one away now. 
All right, this one's coming in from Spaghetti Head Ninety. What a username! I know it says top notch, really engaging and insightful content. Well done and approachable! Explanation mark. Yeah. Five stars. Thank you so much, Spaghetti Head Ninety. Which one of us is well done and which one's approachable? <laughs> I'm definitely approachable. Cool. Yeah, <laughs> I'm well done. A nicer way to say weathered. <laughs> no, not weathered. Anyways, I hope you enjoyed this interview. Let us know what you think on social media and we'll see you soon. Enjoy the episode. All right, Eric, thanks for joining us. We're really excited to have you. This is one that we've been anticipating specifically since you and I met not too long ago. But why don't we just dive right into it? Bring it to the beginning. Tell us how you first got into the tech space and then how that path led you to what you're doing now. Wow. Well, first of all, thank you so much for having me. It's a pleasure to be with you today. So yeah, I'll spare you the excruciating details. The long story short is, you know, I kind of got lucky. You know, when I graduated college, I had like a lot of people that are 20 years old or 21 years old, had no freaking idea what I wanted to do in life. And so I went the complete opposite direction of trying to get a job because I knew I didn't want to get one of those. And I went into academia and my field of study was in cognitive psychology, specifically artificial intelligence and language. And I just happened to be down the road from Verizon Labs, which Mm -hmm. was XBell Labs. So these are the original innovators of a lot Mm -hmm. of mobile technology And they were hiring a lot of people like me at the time, even unseasoned professionals, to help out with early usability testing on mobile devices. So I, in 1999 and 2000, was working on mobile digital technology, some of the early stuff back, if you can remember, of T9 texting, where you had to like push a button three times to get a letter to show up. And that's how I got into, you know, really thinking about technology just by pure dumb luck. Crazy. T9 is giving me serious <laughs> nostalgia. <laughs> Mike has mentioned a few times on this podcast that he's really good at using T9. So yeah. you're bringing it all back. Right? Well, I mean, with autocorrect. How I'm fast better. are you at T9? You know, you had to really push a lot of buttons to get a word out. That was the true measuring stick of your like tech savviness mm-hmm. for how good you were with T9 for sure. That's really cool. I mean... To be involved at the dawn of certain technology like that, especially mobile tech, which is such a integral part of the way we all communicate today, that's really interesting. I know you studied linguistics and psychology at various schools, including, I believe, Northwestern and UCSF. Northeastern. You, Northeastern. Northeastern. The one okay. in Boston, not the one in Chicago. Right. Very important distinction. Do you feel your field of study at those schools helped you in your career as it is now, or is it more that you've kind of stumbled into this over time and some of these different experiences that presented themselves rather intentionally or randomly. Yeah. I mean, if you were to ask my dad when he was still alive, the number of times that I tried to quit grad school because of how much I hated it and how he forced me to stay in because he was like, you idiot, they're paying you to go to graduate school on a stipend. Like, why would you do it? And he said, it'll always pay off. It'll always pay Mm -hmm. off. And I said, you're full of shit. Like, what do you know? Sure enough, I think for one, being completely fluent in data and not having data scare me had, especially in the early days, really paid off pretty well because I was one of the few people that 
even knew how to do a t-test or an ANOVA or statistical stuff that a lot of people that ended up in creative fields have no idea what they are, let alone how to do one. And so, you know, I learned a lot of skills that strangely have become applicable, even if you just take the AI and ML, machine learning and artificial intelligence conversation. I know the basics of that stuff because of what I studied, you know, long before it hit commerce. And so I just feel like I had a head start, even if, you know, I was a complete business idiot, at least I understood some of the basics coming in. And, you know, now, of course, I just use the PhD on the end of my name to look more professional than I am. <laughs> nice. <laughs> so you mentioned that you were one of the few people that knew how to do certain things that were really crucial to some of these tech developments. And I know that you worked at some really big and reputable tech companies like YouTube and Spotify and even Instagram. When you think back to your time at those places, did people look at you funny because you knew things that they didn't? Or what kind of experiences stuck out to you about your time at those businesses? You know, I think to some extent, because people are often quite superficial when they look at profiles and resumes, I think to some extent, my background as a cognitive psychologist helped me get some of those roles that I would otherwise not be qualified for. So I think, you know, being at places, especially, so I joined YouTube the first time I was at Google twice, but I was at YouTube the first time in 2011. And yeah, there weren't a ton of people on the side of the business that I was on that had PhDs, but I was in a complete universe full of eggheads. Mm -hmm. And so, you know, I think if anything, they were skeptical that I wasn't an engineer or didn't go down a more technical path. And that's primarily because I'm pretty bad at it and I'm much better at the, the left brain stuff. And so, you know, I think it was unique having that background in more of the creative left-brained field or right-brained, I guess. See, I can't even get my brains right. <laughs> but at the end of the day, like, I think to some extent, when you walk into a room, especially full disclosure, especially when I was younger, I looked really young. Even these days, people don't have a good sense of how old I am. And I think the PhD gave me some more credibility when I walked into the room just by virtue of having it. So I didn't feel out of place. I felt more accepted, even when I shouldn't have been. Mm. You mentioned you worked at Google twice. What was the point of the second time? Well, God, that's a deep, long story. <laughs> but essentially, I was briefly back at Google in, in 2016, because my personal life was completely turned upside down. And after I left Google, I was at Spotify for a while and ended up getting fired from Spotify, which we can talk about. I'm an open book, clearly. But at the end of the day, I went back to Google because I had a great reputation there. And it's the best employer I've ever had. When it comes to influencer marketing, there's a podcast that covers it all that you will want to add to your playlist. The Influence Factor by the Influencer Marketing Factory. They talk about influencer marketing, social media, the creator economy, social commerce, and much, much more. They cover all aspects, including the creator economy, social commerce, the latest trends, the metaverse, TikTok trends, and that's just the beginning. The Influence Factor by the Influencer Marketing Factory. Add the podcast to your playlist right now. Wow. Yeah, let's talk about it. What led you to getting fired at Spotify? 
Yeah, you know, it's a difficult thing, you know, and I think a lot of people, especially as you get more senior, would shy away from that kind of conversation. But mm-hmm. I joined Spotify as the global director of brand strategy, and this was in the summer of 2015. And not to bum anyone out or say anything too flippantly, but in March of 2016, I was coming back from Stockholm where most of Spotify's executive team sat at the time. And when I landed back in New York, I had some disturbing voicemails from a number in the hometown where I grew up. And it was from the chief of police of that town who uh, informed me that my father had been found murdered in his backyard that morning. And you talk about a thing that changes your perspective. Needless to say, my performance probably fell apart. I wasn't really able to talk about the grief that I was going through. And, you know, there's no bad feelings. I think Spotify did the right thing for the business, but I probably stopped showing up in the way that they needed me to show up. And I had no awareness of what I was doing because I was a complete haze. Yeah, I think that would cause any of us to spiral for sure. We're like 10 minutes in and you've gotten me to open up like this. What magical potion did you sprinkle (laughs) on this mic? It's more a testament to you and being open and vulnerable. So thanks for going there with us. That's my jam. (laughs) That's awesome. So you've had a career so far of what you've shared is in Google, YouTube, Instagram, but now you're working on your own. What caused you to make this change? Yeah. I mean, I think to some extent, it's been part of the journey that I've been through. I think if you look at my career trajectory since that, you know, really tragic event, it's hard when you're a senior executive and you show up to an office one day and you're given a pink slip or some version of it. It does horrible things for one's ego. I think to some extent, many more people experience that than admit it. Most people end up losing a job not to their own volition at some point. You know, I went back to Google as a survival mechanism, but then I didn't realize that another survival mechanism kicked in pretty quickly, which is clearly for one reason or another, I'm an achiever, maybe an overachiever, some might say. And I did, I guess, what in the corporate world people would look at as failing up. Mm. As a survival mechanism, I decided I wanted to take on bigger and bigger roles to maybe distract me a little bit from the reality of what I was going through. And so, you know, when Instagram reached out about the global head of marketing role and they said, oh, you know, you must move to Menlo Park. I said, not only am I going to get this job and I'm going to convince them to let me do it hundred percent remotely from New York. <laughs> Somehow I convinced them of that. And it was truly, we're talking about a huge marketing team across all regions of the world all time zones. It was Mm -hmm. the distraction that I needed. So I did that for a while. And then, you know, I got recruited a little over a year later for a chief marketing officer role at a company called Bonobos, which in the US people know pretty well. It was one of the first D2C companies, really one of the early ones. They're owned by Walmart now, but it's a D2C retailer. And I was in that role for not very many months when I was on vacation, actually, with my partner. We were in Mexico. And this was, gosh, November of 2018. And I got a call from the investigator who was on my dad's case after all this time, who informed me that due to lack of criminal evidence, they were going to drop all the charges. Wow. And it was a true moment of, I guess, understanding for me 
appropriately, I was in Mexico. I think it took a big swig of tequila or two and went into the ocean or a swimming pool. Can't remember. It was a body of water and decided that I really needed to focus on what matters to me, not just in my professional life, but in my personal life and think about how I want to spend my time each and every day. And so I finished out the year and January 1st of 2019 opened up my company, the human operating system based on the work that I did to figure out my own human operating system. So tell us what the human operating system is for listeners who might not be aware of what you do. If you could give us like a little elevator pitch for them. What do you mean? Not everyone's aware of my tiny <laughs> consulting business. It sounds uh, like something we should be aware yeah. of. <laughs> no, I mean, you know, it's pretty simple. I mean, I've been around and thinking about and in technology for most of my adult life and in software and technology and operating system is just something very simple that enables more complex tasks to happen. Well, it's not very simple, but it's, you know, a baseline that enables more complex tasks to happen. And in a very similar way, I see people and businesses focusing on just tactics and execution without thinking about the underlying foundational operating systems that make them tick and that makes execution more flawless. And I saw it in myself. I spent years just sort of, I guess, with a bag in my head, trudging forward in life, getting bigger and bigger jobs and more and more money and realizing that that's just execution and tactics. But my operating system is very different from that. And in a very similar way, I work with companies, leaders of the companies, so CEOs or C-level people big and small companies, you name it, to help them figure out what their operating system is uh, that guides everything they do both internally and externally. And so it's really beyond just finding purpose, but really aligning what they say they're going to do with what they actually do. It's profound. I'm curious, and I might stumble over this question because it feels a little bit sensitive, but how much of this came from school and like your work experience or what you studied? Did some of this come from values or perspectives that you learned from your father? And is that why this timing and this specific business kind of came out of the tragedy of losing your father? No, I appreciate you asking that question. And don't worry at all about sensitivities. I'm fine. You know, <laughs> I mean that. But there's a couple of things, right? Which is, I was raised by both of my parents, really smart people, but not necessarily educated. I was like the first person in my family to finish college. All of my grandparents were from Eastern Europe and my parents were really first generation Americans. And I think my dad in particular, he spent 38 to 40 years of his life as an entrepreneur. He ran his own kind of real estate business and did a bunch of other random stuff on the side. And I think he was always very perplexed at my working for the man. You know, mm. he was a hippie at heart in a lot of ways, and he didn't quite understand why I was so drawn to these big companies. But there's part of it that was like, I've thought about that a lot and sort of why was I doing all of that? Was I doing it because I felt like my ego needed it? Maybe part of it. I wanted to be cool or something. I don't know what it was. But then as I started to really make changes in my life from the experience of my dad's death, I joined the board of a nonprofit called Experience Camps. 
and experience camps deals with grieving children, children that have lost a parent or a caregiver, generally to drugs, overdose, alcoholism, suicide, you name it. And I started to learn a lot more about grief and the grieving process and how messy and nonlinear it is. And what's been interesting is for many, many years, there were these five stages of grief that I can't remember the woman's name, but she talked about these five stages of grief and it ended with the idea of acceptance. But in the last decade or so, there's been officially a new stage, if you will, of grief that's been added about the idea of creating meaning from your loss. And I feel like I started to think a lot about that and to say like, okay, if I'm going to really make changes, instead of think about one or five year planning, how do I want to spend every five minutes of my day? What kind of thing could I build that would allow me to do that? And a lot of it was driven exactly. I don't think I would have gotten there without being derailed. I think I would have continued on for a while, unhappy path, if I hadn't gone through this experience. That's powerful. So we've talked a little bit about tragedy now. I've also heard you talk about empathy before and how you described it as a new word, which was news to me, but it also makes a lot of sense. And it's also a word that's been used and abused by you know, politicians and corporations alike. Can you just break down a little bit further your perspective around empathy for our listeners? Yeah, no, I'm glad you asked that. I mean, empathy is one of those things where Paul Bloom wrote a book called Against Empathy, actually. He's a professor at Yale, or was, I think he still is. And he kind of makes a point early in the book that he chose this provocative title because empathy is one of those things like kind of puppies and rainbows that it's easy to get away with just saying, oh, I'm I'm empathetic, or Mm -hmm. I have a lot of empathy. But the reason why I think it's so alluring in part is because it's a really, really slippery word. You know, there's been lots of academic research. In fact, one of the professors on my advisory board when I got my PhD, she's one of the leading researchers on empathy from a psychological perspective. And there's several different ways that you can think about what counts as empathy and what doesn't count as empathy. And she even says at the end of the day, like, maybe we shouldn't even be talking about that word and actually talk about things we can measure or hold ourselves accountable to because they end up just kind of being posted as a value statement in a corporation that people say, oh yeah, I can get on board with that. And nobody ever defines what they mean by it. So I think it's become a very easy word to use. But in fact, it's good timing because right now I'm working with her, Professor Judy Hall is her name, and we're going to publish an academic study on what does empathy mean in corporate America uh, based on my interest on this idea that people are using it without backing up what they mean by it. Wow. Well, I'll be waiting anxiously to see that come out and I'll be reading it for yeah, sure. Yeah, definitely. It'll be pretty dorky, but I appreciate it. <laughs> That's the good stuff. That's the good stuff. On that note, I, that question was kind of transitioning us to this question, which is, I know you were recently published in Entrepreneur and you talked about this concept of kind washing, mm-hmm. which I, I don't want to say resonated with, but I felt like I understood instantly what you meant by that and felt like I could point at a ton of different examples of it in brands that I follow, uh, especially during 2020 with all the craziness that's been happening. But can you define kind washing for us and maybe explain a little bit why brands should avoid it? 
I'm not sure. I mean, for anybody that was sort of around in the 80s and 90s, I kind of stole this word or concept from the idea of greenwashing. And this was front and center, I guess, in the 80s and early 90s originally, when companies would spend all this time investing money and marketing and PR and all of it and talking about how sustainable they were while simultaneously engaging in activities that did active damage to the earth. (laughs) And so a lot of people started calling it greenwashing. As we kind of watched the events of 2020, the horrific events of 2020 unfold, you started to see, you know, uh, you know, if you cast your mind back, I mean, really, you know, the beginning of the COVID-19 pandemic coinciding with, especially in America, the resurgence of Black Lives Matter Mm-hmm. You started to hear all of these companies say, oh, we're here for you in solidarity, or we stand with the Black community, or we're here for you. <laughs> how many times did we say we're here for you? And then you'd look under the hood and you'd be like, how? How are you here for me? Right. How are you standing in solidarity? So I said, I think this is kind washing when companies spend more time and money marketing that they're caring, empathetic, and kind than actually doing anything about it. Mm. Yeah, I think that's such an interesting conversation, one that we've actually had to come head to head with this year, especially. I think a lot of our listeners, too, who are either brand managers or kind of overseeing communications or social media for their own you know, brands or as an agency, they've kind of had to be the mouthpiece of these kind washing statements. Mm-hmm. What kind of advice would you give anyone who's listening who's kind of had to put together these statements on behalf of brands and how can we open up those conversations for a deeper impact and kind of walk the walk to the statements that we're putting out there? Yeah, no, it's a good question. I mean, I definitely don't mean to disparage anybody who has the job of saying, Hey, look, we are trying to do some good stuff as a company. Mm -hmm. (laughs) You know, that's not the point is to point fingers, Mm -hmm. but I guess the question would be is, we're at a point now where transparency and specifics are needed, where if you're going to say we stand in solidarity, what are the actions that you're taking as a company, both internally and externally, to help show that you're putting your money where your mouth is? And it can't be as simple as, well, for the big companies, we're giving $10 million as a one-time donation to this charity, because that doesn't change culture. The question is, what are you doing on a day-to-day basis to build that into your business model so that it's not just about profit at the end of the day, but truly about giving back. That's going to be the future of business. And so, you know, the advice is, it's totally fine, but don't offer audiences placations or just words about what the company is doing. Get specific about what actions the company is taking. Yeah, that's so good. I think there's a common understanding that crisis will always magnify problems. Mm. And obviously, we've seen many examples of that again through 2020. And I think you referenced two of the most major themes, which was the global pandemic and, of course, conversations around racial equality, both significantly exposed people and brands for their true character and values this year. What did you observe the most from brands during this time, other than just saying, we're here for you, even some positive examples, like who did it right in 2020? Yeah, no, I mean, I think that's a hard question because, 
even putting that on a binary of who did it right and who did it wrong is difficult. It's a spectrum, right? There are some organizations that did a better job than others. And then there are some that didn't show up at all. So I think we need to look a little bit more deeply about that. I'd say what I saw, though, for the most part was initially uh, overarching panic <laughs> where it was like, <laughs> right. right, I think we all saw this on anybody that's working across multiple clients and multiple categories and verticals is you start to see people being like, well, what am I supposed to do to react Mm-hmm. What am I supposed to do to put something out there? What is my timeline? When do I say what and how much do I say? And it was a lot of people not having a plan for the unplanned, which is another reason why I do think that the work that I do with the human operating system is not to plug it, but I mean, it's why I think it's so critical is I think ones that did a better job of responding are ones who had a deep understanding of who they are as organizations what they stand for and believe, how they treat employees, how they treat customers, and how they treat each other. So if you look at ones that did a good job, they're the ones that already had the right value system in place. And the ones that did a shitty job are the ones that never established or revisited their value system and their operating system. Yeah, I absolutely agree. And I think the idea of this human operating system is absolutely compelling. For me, Like whenever I hear about something like this, I can tend to get overwhelmed with how to actually execute it practically. I love the idea of it. I catch the vision of it. I understand the potential value of it. But for those listening that maybe have a small, medium, or even a big company, you know, where this could be a value, where do we start? You know, how does it happen practically to actually identify our values and then install this human operating system as you've described it? My God, you're asking me to be practical about it? No. <laughs> I mean, you're asking the million dollar question, right? You know, I guess the first step is to some extent, I come from a world of not just marketing, but for the most part, brand marketing. And the idea of a brand to me has evolved so much from having almost nothing to do with external communications to how a company operates and everything they do. From the way they sent emails to their Slack conversations to their email signatures, you know, everything is part of that brand. And to some extent, in order to really unlock the potential of an operating system, you have to go, and I hate to say this, but it really does start with the people that found or run the company. They have to be buy-in that the way that things are operating could be optimized if you think about taking a step back, revisiting the entire operating system, which include things like your purpose, your vision, your mission, your values, how you position yourself internally, externally into any audience, and then ultimately messaging, which then leads to external communications. You know, But the idea is that you don't start with the external stuff. You don't start with the idea of how you're going to say something to the world. You take a look inward. And so it sounds like a fluffy answer, but it's about convincing people that doing that inward look is going to benefit them in the long run, both from a well-being perspective and financially. Did you know that you can change what you taste by what you hear? How can you use sound to make a deeper connection with your clients? 
Can we be healed with sound? Sound influences people in their buying decisions and their daily lives. In the podcast audio branding, I explore all of this, both with my own observations as a voice actor of over 15 years and by interviewing knowledgeable professionals in the field of advertising, marketing, music, and science. To have a listen for yourself, visit audiobrandingpodcast.com. Yeah, I love that. And we've talked about values on the show before, and some of the best dialogue is always around how to make sure it's contagious. So you mentioned, you mm-hmm. know, how it needs to start from the top and it has to be this internal process. And once that's identified and the work is done there, how do you ensure that it trickles down through our, our organizations and teams and, you know, eventually, like you said, external communication, which could live on social or marketing or whatever it is? Well, I mean, I've written about this as well, but my view of how companies, especially big companies, do performance management, it's broken. It's Mm. absolutely broken. So people are evaluated by how well they perform tasks as opposed to how much their personal values align with the values of the company. So what if we rethought the way that we actually look at the way people perform and instead say, we're going to hire, fire, and develop people based on their alignment to our operating system and our values of organization. So you change the whole conversation and you say, you know, if you say, for example, let's just use, oh, I don't know, let's use empathy. (laughs) Let's, (laughs) Let's say that somebody has a value of empathy and they've clearly defined it, but then none of your employees are evaluated on their ability to both receive and demonstrate empathy. What freaking good is that value? So we have to go and look at internal operations and say, this is how we're installing that operating system into the day-to-day. This is how we're going to do 360 feedback. This is how we're going to do product development. We're going to do it in a way that demonstrates that our value is empathy. So we're going to treat each other as if we're putting ourselves in each other's shoes as we're going through the process. So you make it less about the words on a page and more about behavior. Hmm. That's good. So it stuck out to me that you listed a bunch of different things like values and mission and vision and internal communications. But what stuck out to me was that you mentioned external communications last as like what we say to the world or how we show up online. And I think that's important to call out. And the reason I want to call it out is I think some of our listeners are business leaders, you know, others are marketers that work on the brand side. And I think both of those groups definitely will resonate with this and that order. But then I think another core group of our listeners are more the service providers, you know, the Mm -hmm. people who are typically managing or executing specifically on external marketing activities for these brands. And they may be agencies or they may be freelancers. But I'm curious, like, what can they do if they're not necessarily involved internally currently? Should external marketers or service providers be adding that to their list of services? Should they be exploring how they can involve themselves in internal communications with the brands that they work with? Yeah. And again, the last thing I'd want to do is disparage anybody's choice of career or what they're doing. (laughs) And, you know, we've all been there. I mean, I worked agency side and I've been an executor. 100%. So just to be clear, I, I come from a place of practicing what I preach and understanding that I'm very lucky to be able to do the work that I'm doing. And it's not just a given by any means. Well, here's the overall thing is for anybody that's doing that job, I have a lot of understanding, I guess, of what you're going through because I first started 
doing anything in the advertising world. I'm trying to think of, was it 2005, 2006 was my first agency job. There was a lot less noise. There was just so much less noise. And by that, I don't mean just advertising noise. I mean noise. There's a billion things that people can tune into podcast wise, and we all skip everything. And, you know, nobody's looking at any messages. I'm just sorry to say it, but you know, the traditional idea of pumping out ads, nobody gives a shit. And they never have, but they certainly don't now. So what you, can you do is think about how you can get people to give a shit. In everything you're doing, think about what are you going to be able to do to cut through as best as possible the tremendous amount of zettabytes of data that are available every minute of the day. Because otherwise, you're just a hamster in a wheel. So I know that's not a great uplifting message, but we have to push our clients to be uncomfortable and say, get off of your stupid marketing plan. Stop just doing the cut and paste, check by box, do paint by numbers marketing plan and start to think about how you add real value for people. Start to think about how you communicate in a way that's going to cut through, say something, don't just sell something. Mm, Yeah. That's so profound. Honestly, I think like Mitzi and I have been chatting about that perspective a lot this year. And I think many people listening probably have as well, just because of the circumstances that we've been in. I think it causes us to question everything. But for us, I think just as you're speaking, it reminds me of all the conversations that we've had. And we've really come back to less about what are we just trying to accomplish or execute with the business that we've built. And I think you and I actually chatted about this when we caught up on a call recently, but how can we actually produce work or produce art even that moves culture? And I think for me, it sounds funny to say, but when I say things like that, I almost feel like I sound cheesy and I get insecure about it. I think it's important to have those conversations of what is that big core motivator that you have outside of, I just want to be a marketer or I want to start a business and really taking opportunities like this when the world is just going to shit to say like, man, I might not have that much time left at this rate. So like, I got to get back to the real purpose of this all. I mean, you're hitting upon even a bigger topic, which is, you know, I guess I'm done personally with the idea that the role of business is simply to make as much money as possible and to grow. I'm not trying to be anti-capitalist or bring in politics into this. It's more a question of businesses have already inserted themselves in the cultural fabric of every nation, yet they have not figured out what it means to really serve as stakeholders beyond just shareholders. Mm. And at the end of the day, even we had 181 signatories of the business roundtable in 2019 sign a thing saying, we're no longer just going to look at shareholder value. We're going to look at customer value and employee value. Then you have a research study come out in September of this year showing that those companies have done zero amount better than any other company in actually acting upon what they said they were going to do. So what is the role of business? The role of business needs not to just be about making money and growing at all costs, but giving back to people, making this world a better place. And if that sounds cheesy, shoot me. But at the end of the day, like I just don't understand why we just accept that the role of business is for them to suck our souls and to take our money and to just shout at us. Yeah, I think you're totally hitting the nail on the head. And I think one question I have from that is once you've kind of done the work of identifying your human OS across your organization, 
how do you measure the impact if you're actually making a difference? Like you mentioned that study where they're seeing that they didn't make a difference in their customers' lives or in their employees' lives. But how do you know when it is working? Yeah, I mean, I think that organizations need to do a better, more robust job of doing both employee experience and satisfaction surveys or some metric of understanding what is the experience of employees, not just how do they rate things on a scale, but what is the true experience, especially of diverse communities. And then Mm -hmm. the same thing has to be true of customers, which is like no more just sort of we did a focus group or we routinely do a check-in, but really do some active listening go out there, understand what the needs are. So how do you know it's working? I mean, you're asking the biggest question. There's still a bunch of people. It's like, you're asking the question of how do I know that marketing works, right? Right. I mean, we can't measure any of this stuff that well, even after all this time of trying. Mm -hmm. I think the best way to measure is do you have happier employees? Do you have customers that don't leave you for other brands? (laughs) Do you retain people? Do you stay true to who you are without selling out? Why is that not the metric of success? What do you mean by active listening? I heard you say it and I felt like it was important. And obviously you said active on purpose because it's not just listening. Can you just explain that for me? Yeah, no, I mean, active listening has been around in the psychology literature for 60 or more years, but really the idea is to go, I guess it goes back to the word empathy when you really think about it. I define empathy you know, if I have to put a definition to it, it's trying as best as humanly possible to put yourself in somebody else's shoes or see something through somebody else's eyes, knowing that you can never do it 100%. All you can do is try. And then you have to think, well, what are the precursors to doing that? If I really want to put myself in somebody's shoes or see something through their lens, I have to understand them. In order to understand them, what's required I think what's required is curiosity. The biggest issue is that people ask questions without being curious what the answers are all of the fucking time. Sorry wow. for my language. But <laughs> yeah. you know, at the end of the day, like we have to be curious about each other and really, really curious in any conversation, whether it's with a customer, with an employee, with a peer, business to customer, what are we doing to be curious? That curiosity leads to understanding. Once you have understanding, you can demonstrate empathy by showing to the best of your ability that you've heard them. That's active listening. And that's a powerful takeaway. I think for me, that's something that I want to bring right away back to our clients Mm -hmm. because we spend so much time on social media and we have like what we call social listening tools, Mm -hmm. but really that that's measuring keywords and sentiment. Or like customer service. Yeah, totally. That's social observation. That's not social listening. It's a totally wrong word. Listening is way different than that. (laughs) Yeah. And I think that's super important. And I think that needs to inform how we work with our clients. And we need to find ways to get our clients to do more active listening with their customers because we're missing something really important. Yeah. And one thing too, like we've talked about external marketers, like agencies or freelancers who maybe don't have the luxury of challenging the owners or founders of these companies that they're working for to kind of do the work of discovering their human OS. But what they can do is do some of this harnessing the curiosity side and kind of engaging in those conversations. Would you say that that's like a fair kind of action point that some of these external marketers or freelancers could do on their client's behalf? 
That's great. I mean, are you free to help me with the commercialization of my business? Because I hadn't thought about that. But that's, <laughs> no, no, that's you a, know where to no, find me. <laughs> no. I mean, yeah, I think you're exactly right. Is even just putting together some tools of what does it take to be curious? What mm-hmm. does it mean to really show that curiosity? I think you've hit on something really interesting. Yeah, I mean, and not to mention having, and I can say this, I worked at two different agencies in San Francisco. I was a Goodby Silverstein of Partners and Venables Bell of Partners, both pretty well-known agencies. And I think agencies are spectacularly bad at listening. What do we always do as an agency? We get the brief and say, the client has no fucking idea what they're talking about. Let's rewrite the brief. It happens. <laughs> so how well have we really listened, right? right? So agencies themselves need to do better listening of reading between the lines. Clients, yeah, they're asking for what they're asking for to the best of their organizational ability, mm-hmm. you know, and they're constrained by their organizational constraints. So listen to what they're asking for. Don't just assume they're idiots, you know, because they're not. Yeah, that's good. Yeah. I stand convicted for sure. <laughs> well, man, thank you, Eric, for this. We're sadly coming to the end of our interview. One question we like to ask everybody, but feel free to answer with the filter of some of the things that we've just been talking about is what brands, it could be individuals too, but what brands do you think are making waves online right now? Wow. You know, I guess in full disclosure, I deleted my Instagram and Facebook accounts. So you're asking a difficult question because I only know now the brands that email me. So I was, no. I was hoping you would say you only know the brands that you see on TikTok. But. Yeah, yeah. TikTok, I can't even go down that rabbit hole. I, I, I tried that and I was like, I don't like where this is leading. <laughs> but no, I mean, I don't want to tread over smaller brands that are doing good stuff. But I mean, I've been impressed with Ben and Jerry's for the work mm-hmm. that they did around really trying to provide some education around police in America, even though they're owned by the conglomerate, really stepped out, I think, as an independent player to do some good stuff. I think there are a lot of small D2C brands who have done the best job. And again, there's so many to name, but who've done the best job of being really open and transparent with how they've struggled during COVID, struggled during this year, asking for support, you know, being really, really clear that there's going to be shipping delays. And that's what we're really talking about. It's less about brands that are doing some cool thing. It's more Mm -hmm. about what are the brands that are in everyday action showing that they care. Mm -hmm. And so I've seen it from the smaller brands, a lot more from the bigger brands who have felt a little lost to me on what they really should be doing. So I guess my answer is, you know, a big pump up to a lot of the D2C space, especially D2C retailers who have been just hit They've reaped some of the benefits, but they've also, you know, seen an influx of competition to the likes Mm -hmm. that they've never seen. So I'm not trying to get out of a question, but I think that overarchingly, I see smaller, more, I guess, homegrown brands doing a better job than the big, big brands. Yeah. I really appreciate your answer because usually we get the answer to that question and this is partially because the way we framed it, but it is about who's doing the coolest thing right now to get attention. But I love that your answer kind of flips the switch a little bit and says who's doing the best job at serving their customers and actually sitting in their shoes, like you mentioned, and displaying empathy. So I really love that because that's an important part of, you know, having a brand that lasts the longest and actually makes a difference in people's lives. Yeah, I think that is the brand, right? I mean, you know, Mm -hmm. people talk about Patagonia all the time and they talk about Patagonia for a reason because 
they do very little in terms of shouting at people and a lot mm-hmm. more of trying to pull their values through. And I know they're a well-tried example, but they are for a reason. Before I let you go, I'm going to throw a curveball at you, but we're in advertising and advertising is a big thing that we do for our, our clients. And with this like human OS kind of picture in mind and also keeping in mind empathy in our conversation around that and doing the work of walking the walk in terms of what you speak, do you think it's possible to advertise with integrity and empathy in mind? Or is advertising totally kind of the opposite of what you're kind of hoping that these brands embody when they're doing the work of discovering their human OS? Well, that is a curveball, but I I appreciate the question. I think to some extent, you're talking to somebody that was one of the people in charge of monetizing Instagram, right? Mm -hmm. Like I had daily conversations about how far we could push ad load without people churning. I think that to some extent, advertising turns good platforms bad. That said, in terms of discoverability, in terms of being able to find new products and new services that enhance my life, I think that's the question, right? Is like most advertising, as it always has been, is complete and utter garbage. It's always been that way and it continues to be that way. However, there's always some tip of the iceberg, let's call it 5 to 10 to 15%. Well, maybe that's generous, 5% to 7% (laughs) of advertising that thinks about what true value they're going to add to my life to make me see something in a different way or make me understand a real need that I didn't know I have or service me in a way that makes them feel entertaining, useful, or utility all in the same breath, I guess. So that's what I would push advertisers to do, which is stop asking what kind of cool thing can I make, but really what can I do to add value to somebody's life? That's a great answer. Thanks for doing that. (laughs) Yeah. Great question too. Yeah. Opportunity here for final comments and then otherwise let our listeners know where they can connect with you if they want to learn more. Yeah, no, absolutely. So I don't think I have any final comments or anything like that. I think you got me covering a lot especially early on. So thanks for that. Thanks for a great interview and for having me. I do have a website for the human OS and I'll make sure I get it right. It's just humanos.co. I couldn't get the .com and I didn't want a .org or something mm-hmm. like that. So just the human OS is it the human OS or humanos.org. Try one of those. You'll find me. And then I'm very easily findable on LinkedIn, which is one of the only social networks I still use. I find it valuable. So people can absolutely look me up on LinkedIn and find me there. And I generally love a chat. So feel free to do so. That's awesome. Great. Well, Eric, thank you so much once again for joining us, being in the hot seat for today and sharing your wisdom with us and our listeners. We're excited about it. We can't wait for it to come out and we know it's going to be a hit. Awesome. Thanks so much for having me and stay warm, stay healthy, stay strong. This episode of Wave Social Podcast is powered by Arcade Studios. Show notes for this episode and other episodes can be found at wavesocialpodcast.com. You can also subscribe to the show on Apple Podcasts or wherever you listen. If you've got questions, comments, or suggestions for future shows, hit us up at wavesocial on Instagram. Thanks for joining us.